Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 109 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 109 of Inside Quizzing, uh, Scott and I are chatting with you in the middle of winter. Uh, well, not exactly. I mean, the early part of winter, technically. But it's a cold part of winter. Uh, it is Monday, December 27th. And I don't know uh, what the weather is where you are, Scott, but where I am, it's very cold. Um, where? What is it like where you are? Um, it's uncharacteristically warm. Currently, it is 38, feels like 30. And it is dark here, so the sun has gone down. We did get like two or three inches of snow last night, but it was not a white Christmas. Oh, okay. That's too bad. We did not have a white Christmas ourselves, but apparently most everybody else in Western Washington did. Uh, but we had a white Boxing Day. So uh, December 26th, we actually got dumped on all day long, uh, much to the great delight of my daughter who loves the snow. However, it is not a balmy uh, 38 degrees here. It is currently 23, uh, but last night it was 17. Um, and my office is not that much warmer than 23 degrees right now. So um, I'm, 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 yeah. I'm kind of stuttering and shivering from the stuttering of the shivering. Uh, but that said, we have an interesting show. We have two big discussion topics, and we'll just kind of see how things go uh, regarding these two topics. They're not at all related, I don't think. But anyway, so discussion topic A is really in the form of a question, uh, and it is, is Bible quizzing the most effective discipleship program in modern Christianity today? Now, uh, you know, spoiler alert. I think the answer is yes. Scott thinks the answer is yes. But I think it's appropriate for us to justify this, to defend our, our belief that Bible quizzing is actually the most effective discipleship program in modern Christianity today. Uh, and we've got some arguments to discuss. Um, and we're not really going to argue between ourselves because we agree on this one. But anyway, we'll see if uh, you guys are persuaded. Obviously, you guys are fairly biased in favor of quizzing if you're listening to this podcast. But we certainly would love to hear disagreeing uh, opinions on this or any topic. And then discussion topic B is uh, a little bit more leadership focused. And that is why is it toxic for leaders to do anything dictatorially and railroad their ideas through. And obviously, you know, this is something that we care about, you know, passionately. Scott and I both care about this in terms of quizzing because we care about the quizzing program uh, very much and we don't want quizzing to become toxic. But this is really, uh, you know, the, there's a truth to this both in quizzing and outside of quizzing as well. So we can talk about, obviously we're going to be talking about this from a quizzing point of view, but it, it includes a lot more than that, including, you know, businesses, churches, um, both volunteer and for-profit organizations, um, government, I mean, throw in anything. Uh, I think there's a lot of different, uh, you know, approaches to this same sort of topic we'll be getting through. All right, so let's dive into discussion topic A. Uh, is Bible quizzing the most effective discipleship program in modern Christianity today? So, Scott, um, what do you think? Yes or no? Probably. And I think it is because, in general, I think it is actually much more useful to focus on the like providing of information and breadth of that information than almost focusing on the any desired end result. Um, because I think focusing on the desired end result can, can result in you getting those results, but them not being very concrete or meaningful, if that makes sense. Um, I'm thinking of a lot of, um, 
not any specifically, but just in general, youth religious activities are frankly very emotionally manipulative. And you kind of wonder what sort of um, like actual lasting impact they have. Um, whereas Bible quizzing doesn't say like you sh- I mean, it doesn't explicitly say you should become a Christian. It just says memorize this stuff. And it doesn't even necessarily say like this is awesome stuff to memorize. It's kind of implied, um, but it's like maybe it has an impact on you. Maybe it doesn't, but like that's kind of um, your own personal journey. And we're kind of we're providing you this massive context of information that is pretty much not cherry picked, right? Like each of the material years is selected somewhat at some point in time, but it's not like, I mean, it's even it, the context compared to something like Awana is massive. Um, we didn't pick these single verses and um, expect that they have um, a specific kind of meaning to you. There's just this giant context that maybe ends up having a lot of meaning to you. And I, I think it can be more long lasting the, the impact um, even if it ends up not having an impact for some, right? Yeah. Like to me, I mean, I think this is, is, I think you, you said it very well. You said it, it's probably yes. I, I want to just say it's a yes, but I think I should agree with your probabilistic, you know, assertion because I mean, there's, there's, there's a potential that there is some other program that exists in the world that I'm just not aware of. Right. Um, and so it is a very bold claim to say that, you know, it's the most effective discipleship program when I don't necessarily have the evidence of every other discipleship program that is in existence. However, I will say that it is the most effective discipleship program that I have, that I'm even marginally aware of, uh, you know, in terms of like the, the data that I'm seeing. And I think, I think we need to kind of take a step back here and, and define the terms that we're talking about. Like, what do we talk about in terms of effective, right? So are we talking about like Bible quizzing is changing Western Christendom? You know, are, are we, are we talking about something that big? And the answer is no, I don't think quizzing is that big yet. Like, I don't think quizzing is changing the world of, uh, of, of Christianity, uh, for the better in, in a, in a, in a macro long-term effect. I think it's making incremental small changes in the lives of people who are participating, but it's a, you know, it's a minority of a minority of a minority of, of Western Christians who are involved in Bible quizzing. And therefore its overall impact is going to be consequently very small. So what I'm talking about here is not total impact or total, um, total, you know, some value or something like that, right? Um, net value or whatnot. I'm talking about effectiveness based on, you know, producing the the desired results based on the input that you're providing, right? The amount of energy that you're providing. So it's almost like in, you know, in a business sense, it's return on investment, ROI, right? Uh, the idea of I'm, I'm going to invest a hundred dollars. I get back $105. I have, you know, $5 is my return on investment, you know, that kind of thing in terms of, you know, effectiveness. I use the, the phrase producing the intended or expected results efficiently, right? There's, um, the word efficient, uh, efficient isn't 
in the dictionary definition of the word effective, but like, I, I feel like there's an unstated, you know, sort of implied notion inside effectiveness that contains the word efficiency, right? And efficiency is this, the ability to accomplish something with the least waste of time and effort, right? So if we're talking about quizzing, we're talking about like quizzing in terms of, of the output being discipleship, quizzing versus say a youth group program a youth group program uh and, and let's say all youth group programs across the united states and canada are going to impact and and not just going to are impacting far more lives than uh, quizzing is impacting right the question is to what degree are those lives impacted uh and you know by how much how can you measure this right and of course that's extremely difficult here um and how much investment time is going into those things versus say quizzing, right? And that's where it becomes really, I mean, all of this is really, I hate to use the word subjective, but it's um, non-data oriented analysis, right? It's really more, you know, our experience in, you know, in being involved in youth programs, our experience being involved in quizzing and saying, well, you know, per hour of investing it, it both as a participant, say as a quizzer, as a youth group attendee, a youth attendee, uh, you know, versus say a coach or an official in quizzing versus say a youth pastor or volunteer in a youth program. How do you measure those things together, right? Another might be like a small group Bible study program, right? A small group Bible study program is are they're immensely valuable you know, immensely good things to do and be part of. And if you're not part of one, I recommend you get, be, you know, become part of one, right? Uh, but how much time uh, and effort and investment goes into that for what kind of result, right? You're getting a very positive, uh, substantially positive result of being involved in that. Uh, but how does that relate ROI-wise, ratio-wise to the investment time in quizzing versus the outcome of quizzing? And and to your point, like, you know, Scott, I think you said it extremely well. We're in quizzing, we're not actually targeting overtly. Well, I guess we are overt about it, but we're not targeting through our practices the desired outcome. We're not We're not going to quiz meets and saying, okay, make sure you compete in such a way that results in the highest possible discipleship, right? Like we're not doing that. We're not talking to our coaches and encouraging our coaches to coach their teams in such a way that discipleship is the outcome. Uh, we're not doing that. We're actually trusting uh, the our, our philosophy, our Christian philosophy, the Christian philosophy of saying, you know, the Bible is the inspired word of God and the Holy Spirit is real and active and will illuminate those words when, you know, written on our hearts, i.e. memorized, right? We're trusting in those two truths. And in so doing, we're actually seeing the fruit of that trust and the effective investment through the discipleship that happens in, in quizzing, right? We're, we're not saying, I don't think other than maybe you know, at the, at the district level, at the, you know, district leadership level, I don't think we're really all that focused on discipleship. Um, it's sort of an unspoken expected outcome that just happens as a byproduct of being involved in quizzing. Um, anyway, I should stop babbling. Does that make sense? I think so. Um, I'm trying to think of an analogy to make and struggling. I just like that at least as somebody running a quiz pro, um like a district there weren't all of these very specific agendas that i needed to try to meet right like right. i just 
I was trying to make it fair, accessible, and something that provides um, encouragement and motivation to learn more of the Bible. And that was kind of it. Um, And when I say that was kind of it, not in a negative way, um, the fact that that's what it was actually made it, I think, makes it a lot easier to meet that goal. Yeah, agreed. Um, Maybe there's an analogy here in, say, sports, like with uh, track and field or like, well, let's separate those track and say cross country. You know, there's a lot of running in cross country. There's a lot of running in, in track events. Uh, so let's say, you know, is the goal of say long distance track and or cross country is the goal of that, uh, at say the junior high and high school level is the goal of that to, you know, get a particular record or to be able to complete a course in a, you know, or a, or a, uh, a race under a certain percentage of, uh, under a particular uh, time limit. Right. And I think, objectively on its surface those are tangible goals but i think like we don't we don't participate in those sorts of activities for those goals we participate because it's healthy right like um the idea is is the outcome of our participating in say a sporting event something that that has high cardiovascular like that uh the outcome is better health right uh, but it's not like we design the track events around the notion of let's have healthier children. Uh, we don't say like let's develop track a track and field program so that we have healthier kids, right? Uh, it's we we want healthier kids. We develop a track program knowing it will it will create healthier kids, but we're creating the program as a as a motivate. There's 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 obstacles and challenges and rewards inherent in the track program that are what the the both the participants the youth participants and the adult leadership are focused on achieving that are transitory right transitory that's not temporary right um they're 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 illusions uh they exist for a time and then fade um so somebody who is 32 who back when they were 17 and got, you know, first place in a 3200 meter or something like that. Uh they're not going to look back on that. I mean they might look might look back on that and say that was cool that I got first place, but it's not like this big cha- you know, it doesn't have lasting effects necessarily. I think the health effects and the self-discipline effects and, you know, leadership res- uh uh, respect effects and all sorts of other sorts of social effects. Those things are the things that last through age 32 and beyond. Uh, is there a simpler way to say what I just said? I'm not sure. I mean, I think sports are a decent analogy in that there are lots of positive things that come out of sports participation. But in general, we try to make sports fun so that people will participate. Um, we don't try to make them... Well, like fun so that people participate and participate more. And it's more through the quantity of participation that the benefits get realized. And it's not trying to um, make each minute involved in sports maximally beneficial to some goal. Right, right, right. So the idea being that I'm not as a coach of a track team, I'm not optimizing practice for what's going to get somebody to be physically healthy 
you know, later in life, rather I am optimizing for what's going to cause them to be the most prepared to get first place at the meet that's coming up in a couple of weeks, right? Um, and it just so happens that by focusing on the, the short-term illusionary goal, I actually am achieving the more valuable uh, non-illusionary long-term goal. Right. It's not like, let's just, let's say that the only point of football is to teach teamwork. Um, If that were the case, it's not like we should be designing every minute of a football competition um, to maximally promote good teamwork. Right. Like we're designing a competition to be maximally like fun that has a byproduct that we desire. Yeah, I totally Um, agree. So then assuming that that's our, our definition of effective, right? And with this idea of efficiency, intended results, we're not necessarily targeting intended results, but the intended results are this sort of byproduct of what we're, of, of what we're actually doing uh, both before, during, and after the program. Then how can we demonstrate that quizzing is the most effective discipleship program given those definitions? Because I mean, obviously, what we're doing is we're 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 setting up comparisons. Where we're saying, okay, find me another program, and let's actually compare the amount of investment in each of those programs as our denominator. And then the numerator is, well, what's the value you get out of it? What what is the actual positive that that comes out of that program in terms of discipleship? Right, and I think that's really difficult because I don't know what measure you would pick as like being a true indicator of of anything. Which is why, yeah. which is why focusing on like a secondary thing of just pure knowledge um, is it's serving as this proxy. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, there isn't a. It, I don't know that we can ever objectively measure the effectiveness of discipleship, right? Like, like, well, and not even the effectiveness effectiveness of discipleship. How do you measure? if discipleship happened, right? Like, like I think there are erroneous proxies that we can use to approximate a measurement if we work really hard at it, but we don't exactly have, you know, objective data that we can point to and say, this is a, you know, there is a discipleship of 7.3 here, but only 4.7 here, you know, that kind of stuff. We, we don't have that. Uh, we do have the ability to measure, although it would be very difficult, we, we at least in theory have the ability to measure the denominator. We can say, well, here's how much time that's getting invested, right? Time, money, uh, effort, energy, these sorts of things can be, can be quantified. But like, how do we, how do we isolate a denominator? I think it's more along the lines of like, what do we, what do we experience in each of those environments? What are, what is the sort of expected outcome of it? What do we see later in life maybe? So like somebody who is, um, I'll two, two examples, right? Uh, somebody like, like myself, I was involved in track and field and cross country. Uh, and I, and, and when, when I say track and field, I, I never did field events. I, I actually tried to do some field events, but I was terrible at them. I only, so I, when I say track and field, it's really more track and, and kind of off to the side, there was field, but I didn't do that. So anyway, I was involved in track and field, cross country and cycling in, in high school. And I was also part of the chess team. So let's take, um, you know, uh, cross country and chess as two examples. Uh, 
I put in more hours in chess, but let's say that I put in the same number of hours, right? And I was going to measure the effectiveness of health impacts uh, later on in life. Uh, obviously, intuitively, we could say, well, certainly the, the cross country actually had some sort of contributing value. The chess probably didn't have very much, right? But then if we say like, okay, let's take cross country and track and compare those two things very similarly, right? Which one of those had probably more long lasting health positive, uh, you know, health impacts? Um, I think we can, we can start to quantify experientially some things being harder physically than others and having a longer impact, even though we can't necessarily say, I don't know, without some sort of broad set of proxies it would be it would be very difficult to actually get to an objective measure right i guess one question is do we like how much do we care to prove quizzing's relative greater usefulness <laughs> but you know like do we really sense that parents and kids are making like um decisions with how to spend their time that we need to pr like put up this proof that bible quizzing is better by some measure than say youth group or something else yeah, I kind of feel, speaking personally, I kind of feel it would be nice to be able to to provide some sort of evidence for this claim, right? Um, so I'm, I talk with, you know, people who are involved in quizzing, I don't have to convince them of this. They, I can, I, I was, uh, so I was at, at uh, internationals, uh, what, back in... July, it was far warmer back then than now. Uh, but uh, back in July, I was at internationals and I was one of the, um, uh, the devotion speakers uh, one of the days. I think it was the last day that was there. And I, I had mentioned as part of my thesis that, that quizzing was the most effect effective discipleship program in Christianity today. And of course, got cheers and everything. And of course, it's like, obviously, I'm preaching to the choir, you know, in some senses, literally uh, in that moment. But Folks who are involved in quizzing are already aware of its effectiveness as a discipleship program. That's in part why they're there. I mean, maybe not the youth necessarily, uh, although for many that is true, uh, but certainly for coaches, parents, uh, other leaders in the program, uh, I think that's why they're, they continue to stick with quizzing. They, they really believe it is the most effective program that's out there. But when I speak to people who haven't experienced quizzing, they kind of, I mean, obviously there's that blank stare where you try to explain it and they don't understand. And I get that. It's, it's a hard thing to just understand uh, in, out of the dark. I, I get that. That was me before I saw my first quiz meet. I didn't understand quizzing at all. Uh, until I saw the first quiz meet and then I was like, oh, this is actually really cool, you know, and then, then I get it. But when you're explaining something like quizzing or even when somebody sees quizzing and they look at it and they say, okay, yeah, that's, this is great. This is cool. I can see the value of this, but I reach more kids through this other program, right? Or I have greater impact by doing this other ministry or something like that. And it's like, okay, that's, that if true would be a fair rebuttal to I, you know, like, like why I shouldn't necessarily be involved in quizzing, uh, why I shouldn't try to start a quizzing program at my church. But I don't think those are actually valid because I think quizzing actually is the most effective discipleship program. And if I can express that, if there was a way to demonstrate that, I, ideally a way to prove it, but even short of proof, if there was a way to demonstrate that it was the most effective discipleship program, then I would, I think it would be easier for us to convince the naysayers on the sidelines to get involved. Sure. And so I think at that point, I mean, 
they can kind of be some confrontational discussions, right? Because you have to say, well, what are your measures? Like, is it, you know, the percentage of the participants that say they have become a Christian? And how much can you, you can't prove it, right? But like, to what degree are you certain of that? Um, you know, like, it's a very confrontational thing to ask. I think if you said, do you think that it is useful to know the Bible at a deep level? Um, then I, I can't imagine what would rival quizzing. I mean, I remember talking to kids at a church, um, and these are, these are kids that their parents were Christians. Um, they went to church every Sunday. They went to youth group. They probably did a wana. They probably did some devotional thing at home. And all of them were like, oh, yeah, before quizzing, I would memorize between 5 and 20 verses a year. And then all of them were like, well, in quizzing, I memorized between 150 and 900 a year. You know, and so it's like, the, this is your, like, your, your demographic that would most deal with the Bible outside of quizzing. Right, right. And the amount of memorization was basically zero. Um, and so, I mean, you kind of have to settle on, do we think that Bible knowledge is this very important thing? But I think if you do, then quizzing far outshines everything else. Um, and then if you're talking about different criteria, um, I'm not sure how quizzing would fare. Um, I'm also, you know, I, I bet you most people would struggle, struggle to articulate, um, the value of things that they participate in or that they run in any concrete manner. It's just a hard thing to do. It is. It is. So I think here's sort of the thing. If you asked any Christian, whether Bible knowledge was important, you're going to get the answer. Yes. And so I don't, I don't think it's a, it's a Boolean in that sense. I think it's more a value statement of to what degree is Bible knowledge useful uh, in terms of discipleship relative to other pursuits, right? right. So you, you could say like, okay, yeah, I, I, as a Christian, I should know more than zero about the Bible, but as a Christian, I should also do good works. Like I should be out there serving, you know, uh, in my community, I should be, uh, helping the poor. I should be, you know, there, there there's, there, I should be evangelizing. Let's say I should be, uh, going out and, and, uh, spreading the gospel. You know, there, there's all these sorts of things. There's things like, um, I should worship God. You know, I should be praying. What's my prayer life like? Right. And you could make the argument, obviously all of those things need to be at some level above zero. Right. So the question is really not so much like, you know, is Bible knowledge important? I think absolutely it is. How much is Bible knowledge important relative to overall discipleship, right? And I would argue that, you know, we're memorizing James, right? Um, uh, faith without works is dead. Absolutely. I uh, totally agree. Uh, James is right, turns out. Uh, but works are a byproduct of a real faith. They are in, a, I, would, I would argue they are an unavoidable natural byproduct of an active true faith. So in a sense, I don't even necessarily have to worry about the works per se. I have to worry about the faith and how do we, how do we develop the faith, right? Uh, and there, we develop the faith through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right? Um, and there's all kinds of different arguments in, you know, Christian doctrinal circles as to how that works. And I don't want to necessarily go down that, you know, that rabbit hole, uh, right now, although it's a very interesting rabbit hole to uh, descend through, but rather to say like, okay, 
uh, what then sets me up, it's almost like discipleship is the thing that sets me up to then do good works and lead a, a good Christian life, right? To be a good uh, Christian, right? In that, in that full sense, right? Um, and I'm not necessarily suggesting that being a, a Christian or doing Christianity is some sort of trite sequence of of actions, uh, but but I'm, I'm 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 expressing that in a simplistic linguistic way to represent the fullness of of a full Christian faith. But discipleship is that that process by which it, we could even call it sanctification in a sense. Discipleship and sanctification work. Um, they're they're sort of the spiritual side of things and the human side of things working in parallel, right? Uh, going from you know, inception of the Christian faith into, um, by, by someone into the, the richness and fulfillment of that through, uh, sanctification received discipleship received, and now put those things working together and put into action. Right. So within that larger construct, uh, looking specifically at discipleship, what we're talking about is essentially preparation. I'll, it's preparation and training for being Christian, right? And so there's a lot that goes into that. There's, you know, a, a, a praying, a prayer life is very important. Bible study is very important. Uh, fellowship, uh, accountability is very important. Uh, teaching, training, being taught and trained and equipped in, in righteousness. All of those things are very important. So then looking across that spectrum, what is the most effective at preparing us for Christianity, the, a, a walk of a Christian life. And to me, uh, I'm looking at this going like all of those things are important. And I don't want to say like by saying that, Christ, uh, that, that Bible knowledge is the most important, I'm not saying prayer life is not important, not at all, <laughs> but rather that uh, Bible knowledge on its own with the Holy Spirit sets a blaze a fire that causes everything else to happen that causes a, an active rich prayer life that causes an active ministry life that causes seeking after more knowledge and more fulfillment and more uh, fulfillment's not the right word illumination um and seeking after god's wisdom and so forth it all stems from that origin point now you could make the card counter argument well but what if somebody starts with prayer and says prayer is the most effective thing because if you pray, the Holy Spirit then uh, answers, right? Um, and uh, through prayer, you know, again, we're going back to James again, right? But if we lack wisdom, we go to God, we ask in faith and we will receive, right? And so the idea being that, okay, start with prayer and then you're given the wisdom, you're given in the illumination. And like, okay, yep, that's a counter argument to quizzing, uh, and so you might say like, well, shouldn't we focus on ministries that are involving prayer life, uh, prayer slash life integration, right? Uh, and I think there's an argument for that. And I think that those, those programs could be extremely valuable and extremely powerful. The question then is, what is the relative value per hour expended, right? And I honestly keep coming back to this notion of if I spend an hour in prayer versus I spend an hour memorizing the Bible, I think my hour spent memorizing the Bible actually returns more than the hour of prayer, which I know that's going to sound ex like borderline heretical, right? What I'm saying here, but I have some, some 
I, I have anecdotal evidence to suggest that that may be the case. And then the question then becomes like, okay, but obviously both lead to the other, right? And both need the other. So like if an, an act of prayer life is going to lead toward, hopefully it should, I would think, lead toward a desire to read more scripture, to understand scripture better. And then starting with scripture, reading scripture more is going to call us into a more devout prayer life, right? Um, anyway, does that ramble make any sense? It does. and But I think a lot of it, well, I have, I think, three main thoughts. A lot of it is unknown. Um, so that's one thing. Um, you were very clear that you are discussing relative importance and that some amount greater than zero is good for all of the things that you mentioned. This is very similar to the discussion around key verses, right? It's like, isn't every verse key? And it's like, some are relatively more key, right? <laughs> and it's not, yeah, the, yeah. it's not that the ones that aren't have zero value of any kind. Um, but then the last thing is, I think it's it is just a useful exercise to like talk about all your assumptions, right? And say like this is why I think this is valuable and why I think this other thing is valuable and why the relative value is this versus this. Like that's a very useful thing. Um, and whatever level you want to be having it on, right? The prayer versus scripture memory versus something else, or at the different kinds of ministry level. Um, if you can have that sort of conversation in a non like, I mean, at the end of the day, everyone's goal is should be the same thing. Right. And so, um, I don't know. It's, I think it's just, it's useful to try to talk in more concrete terms about things that you have strong assumptions about. Yeah, it's very true. It's very true. And I, I mean, and I do want to underscore again, something that we've both said here, we're not talking about, memorizing scripture as the entirety and the whole of the Christian experience. Uh, quite, quite, quite the contrary. Rather, we're talking about it as a catalyst toward the full Christian experience, right? Um, and many other things can be that, right? I'm a big fan of potlucks. I love potlucks. Wonderful fellowship, wonderful time to be able to get to know people, to encourage each other, to pray for each other, to be with other Christians, right? Uh, but I will readily, uh, you know, accept that, you know, a, a, a good worship program is generally going to be more effective uh, at engaging people in a Christian way of life than a um, than a potluck, right? Um, despite the fact that I love potlucks and would never want to see them ever go away, right? Um, although I guess with COVID right now they are, they have gone away at least temporarily. Hopefully they they come back someday. Um, similarly, like, and I'm not again. I'm 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 I'm, I'm, I can feel the tomatoes being thrown at me right now. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hearing the calls of heresy, <laughs> um, but it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm still looking at this notion of like, I want everyone to have an active knowledge of scripture an active prayer life and active Christian walk. But what's going to, what's going to be the catalyst for the most number of people for the least amount of time invested doing it? for the longest rewards. And to me, it's like, well, if I, if I call for prayer, if I encourage prayer, those are all wonderful things. And when prayer happens, it is powerful and it's a wonderful thing. But if I can get somebody to memorize a couple chapters of scripture, I think that actually does more for them over the course of decades than the same amount of time and effort spent in prayer in that shorter moment 
on average, right? And of course, it's highly different for everybody in their particular place, right? So if somebody is in a, uh, if there is a particular person who is in a moment of personal crisis and you spend a couple hours with them praying, that can mean everything to that person, right? It can be the change moment in the trajectory of their entire life, right? And that shouldn't be ignored or, or ignored. Um, it's more that that moment is an outlier, right? If, if that makes sense. Well, yeah. I mean, exceptions don't prove the rule and difficult cases make bad law, right? Like, right. I mean, you're talking in generalities. And so specifics that contradict your general statement do, does not mean that your general statement's incorrect. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, we probably spun around this. I wish I, we could get more objective about it, but I think we can get objective about the input, the, the costs, right? The investment, uh, the investment, right? The, the hours invested, the time invested, the energy invested, the money, um, which is small, but that too is an investment. I think we, we can get really objective about those things, but how do we get objective about the, 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 the top line value, I, uh, the, the actual discipleship? I don't, I don't know how that that's outside of personal experience. Is there a way to quantify that? Not not really. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Which is unfortunate because, I mean, while we both think Bible quizzing is the most effective discipleship program, it means we're not even in the ballpark of being able to demonstrate that that's true. Uh, correct. <laughs> yeah. Well, why don't we move on to topic B? Maybe we'll get a little bit farther with that one. Um, this is, I'm going to throw the question out there and, and, and Scott, why don't you kind of uh, talk well, a little bit about your experience. What, oh, you have something before that? I mean, you kind of already previewed it, but like, perhaps is there a way that we can state it more like a debate where there is um, a resolution and maybe not one that is, I mean, we kind of gi give it all away in the title. You know what I mean? <laughs> Currently. Oh, in topic B, you mean? Yeah, it's, it's, it's phrased so negatively. Like, how could anyone think the other? That's true. Um, on the fly here. Uh... So let's okay. So let 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 me let me give you two examples. So so the the topic is you know why is why is it top, uh, toxic for leaders to do anything dictatorially or railroad their ideas through? But as I'll play devil's advocate here, um, which is going to be hard because I don't believe this. But um, let's say you have somebody who says, "But hang on, yeah, sometimes you need a leader to be." kind of like a dictator in the sense that they are providing a singular vision and they are pushing that vision through uh, rather than trying to, to build consensus among everybody who is involved. And ultimately, when you have such a leader who is arguably being a little dictatorial, they are acting in the best long-term interests of the organization's goals by being dictatorial and railroading their ideas through. And that can be of value to the organization's goals and maybe even the organization in the long term. Now, I don't believe that that's true, but I can see that argument being the case, right? It's sort of the, um, the thing of saying, well, if it's a benevolent leader... Uh, don't you want the benevolent leader to railroad good ideas through the uh, bureaucracy? Right, right. I think that's phrased well. Um, a couple things on that is that you should not be so myopic as to expect... Um, no, that's not the right way to state it. Um, 
if you are basing the continued existence and success of whatever organization you're a part of on a benevolent leader, um, you will be disappointed more often than not. Um, because nothing lasts forever. And unless you have systems set up, um, I don't know a good way to sum that. It's just um, you're lucky if you have a benevolent leader, I would say. Um, but then another side of it is to have an effective organization, you really need everyone to be bought in to what is happening. And that doesn't mean that everyone needs to agree on it, but they need to like have bought into it. And if one person is making all the decisions – even if they're good ones, that organization can continue to exist with very little buy-in from anybody um, because you're never having to like put your own thought process through any sort of decision or there might not be any conflict because no one has any need to voice conflict um, until you do, and then it's very, very bad. Um, and then... My last point, which is, again, really difficult to prove, but people who either do anything dictatorially or do anything unpopular like to throw out quotes like, the night is always darkest before the dawn. Is that Churchill, I think? Or um, people will doubt you, doubt you, doubt you, and then you change the world. I think that's Steve Jobs that Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos fame quoted. And it's like... it. It costs you nothing to say these things because no one can disprove it because you're like – you're just stating what the current reality <laughs> is, is that you're being doubted or the night is dark. Um, and it could be you very well don't get to changing the world or a new day, right? Um, and th they're very trite and convenient sayings for someone to say to get people to not question what they're doing. And in my experience – Great leaders want to share everything about their motivations um, and how something has happened and how they expect it to continue happening. Um, and when I started running PNW Quizzing, I got one of the best pieces of advice that I think applies to every aspect of life. And it was, in the absence of information, rumor fills the void. And it is a human um, – what's the word? Um, it's a human trait to, if you are not given information about why something has happened, to expect that the reason is bad, um, even if it's not. And so if you are leading an organization, it is in your best interest to share and share widely um, what you're doing and why and to give people opportun opportunities to say that they want something different. Because another important thing about running an organization is – you don't need everyone to agree, but if anyone feels like they don't agree or don't like the course of things but have no way to say it or be taken seriously or have any influence on the future, that is a recipe for disaster as well. So I think those are the, the two main takeaways is good leaders should be sharing information um, to combat that very human trait to just expect bad things if you are not being given information. But then also every participant needs to feel like they have – some stake in the future and some ability to change the future. Um, I'm not saying that it needs to be equal, right? Like oftentimes a leader will have an outsized influence on the future, but that does not mean that they should have 100% influence on it. Yeah. I mean, I agree with everything, but I want to bring in a word from the original topic summary, right? A toxic, right? So let's say there's a leader, whether, I mean, obviously a leader, 
every leader believes that they're benevolent, right? No malevolent leader thinks to themselves, "Wahaha, I'm being malevolent." They're, they're, everybody's thinking that they are they're doing what is necessary to be done uh, or, or bring about what they define as good. So let's take the benevolent and malevolent and kind of set it aside for a second and just say any sort of leader that routinely dictatorially railroads their ideas through, why does that over time create a toxic, or actually let, let me phrase it more neutrally, does that over time tend to lead towards a toxic environment? And if so, why? Because then it turns everything into this um, subversive confrontation because that's the only way to get anything done. Right. Either it's the one dictator making all the decisions or it's some overwhelming group, kind of like a mutiny or a coup, making something happen that they spring out of nowhere. It's just like the the mindsets are really, really bad. Um, I'm kind of reminded of um, the rule book says that. Well, I don't remember exactly what the rule book says about how the officials table should deliberate on a ruling, but. There have been cases where I did not agree with all the officials at the table, um, but I wanted to get to a point where we were all fine with the ruling that would be announced as the table's ruling because there were a couple things that I never wanted to have happen. I never wanted to announce the ruling and throw someone else under the bus. So I never wanted to – like if I was the quiz master, I wouldn't say like, hey, this is what we're going to rule and it's what the answer judge thinks, not me, and I disagree. I don't think that's great. <laughs> I also – though want to make sure that the bo both of us are happy with the way that we are moving forward which means both of us should have had some uh, like ability to say what we think and why and talk through and like have the ability to go back and forth because i mean it kind of just goes back to what i said already like you want an ability to influence the future <laughs> and if you've had if I, as the quiz master, have had an ability to say what I think and the answer judge does not agree, well, like, I've had the opportunity to say it. And, like, I will need some demonstration from them that they understand what I am saying. But if still at that point they disagree, then that's fine, right? Like, I feel heard and that I'm not ignored. And then everyone should be able to move forward in a very positive way that makes everyone feel like they sh they can bring up disagreement um, disagreements in the future and not that they have no chance to bring it up because I think that's the, the other way that it falls down is if one person is making all the decisions, um, it is very utopian to expect that they're always going to be the best decision. Um, and if you are proceeding in such a way that discourages everyone who participates in your program from bringing their own perspective and opinion over time, you will get worse and worse decisions being made. Yeah, and that's and I, I think that's obviously true. The question is, though, how does it go from a program that is simply making less or an organization that is simply making less good decisions, less ideal decisions to a leadership structure that's actually toxic? Right. And I and, and by toxic, I mean, like uh, actively negative to even be involved in the organization at at, at a leadership level. That's a good question. I'm not really sure. I think the speed at which that happens is, is going to differ. I don't think there's any golden ratio or anything. Um, yeah, definitely true. Definitely true. But I mean, it's, it's um, I mean, certainly the idea of a leader who is dictatorial and pushes their ideas through to the sense of like, like, 
you need some of that headstrongness to get things done. But I think things become toxic when it is the leader does this in a way that it is it is the leader versus everybody else, right? Um, in the and and I, and I'm not even saying like I think even sans toxicity, it's a bad practice for exactly the reason you're talking about, right? So if you never get to the to toxic levels, and in fact, it's it's just a benevolent leader who's always benevolent. Uh, and they simply act dictatorially, I think your organization suffers because all ideas essentially have to go through the leader, and that slows things down uh, big time. It reduces innovation massively, right? Um, but assuming a benevolent leader, uh, you're really, it's not so much that the organization is, the leadership is going to turn toxic or, or the organization is going to turn toxic or that the organization fails systemically or entirely, but rather the organization is simply less effective. It's less, it, it's certainly less innovative. It, there's, there's less, in, less in, innova, uh, innovation going on, less opportunities to innovate going on, right? And less ideas to be progressive um, in, in that way, right? Um, but all of that can exist in that sort of less than ideal scenario without it turning toxic. I think it turns toxic when a leader says, not only am I being dictatorial and pushing my ideas through and not listening to other people, I am actively going to silence other people uh, and prevent them from having different points of view. And I think at that point, that's where the line gets crossed, where you've converted from a less effective organization into a toxic organization. Right. And I think it's very helpful to point out that it does not have to devolve to these levels for it to be suboptimal. Oh yeah. I think it's immediately suboptimal to have a leader who decides everything like, like immediately just for, for just on its face, based on what you were saying. Right. So if you have only one leader who decides everything versus, uh, uh, you know, a, some other organizational form, you are immediately less efficient um, at innovation, right? Immediately. Now, you are more efficient in getting certain things done that the one leader says is the thing that, that is going to happen, right? Um, so if there's, it, you know, democracy is messy and it's convoluted and takes a really long time, right? It is far more efficient for a singular person to simply make a decision and that's what goes, right? But ultimately you end up losing, you, you win in the short term and you lose in the long term in terms of, of quality. And then you lose in terms of efficiency, uh, in the long term as well, right? But none of that is necessarily toxic. But I, I totally agree. From the moment that you have an organizational structure that way, you immediately become less uh, innovative and you become uh, less effective. Right. I think if, as a leader, a majority of people disagree with a decision that you're making, I would seriously reevaluate one of two things. One is like, am I making the right decision? Mm -hmm. But but even if you are very confident that you are, like, have I not shared it adequately with people? And, like, um, have I not communicated effectively about why and what the vision is? Um, because I think at the end of the day, the percent of decisions that a leader will make that is both um, extremely unpopular but also excellently communicated is going to be almost 0%. <laughs> well... 
No, see, I'm gonna I'm gonna push back on that. I think I think in general that is true with a large enough sample size, um, a, a large enough population size, right? Um, I don't think it's true when you're talking about smaller groups. So, like, if if I'm the if I'm a pastor of a church that's say two thousand people in size, and I have an idea for change, and I adequately communicate it, and 1,500 people are like, this is a terrible idea, and 500 people are like, yeah, okay, this might be a good idea. That's a really good indication, like what you're saying, I, I agree, that's a pretty good indication that uh, I haven't, I, I either have a bad idea or I haven't adequately communicated it or some other sort of, there's some sort of other failure going on there, right? But if I'm in it, let's say I'm a pastor of a church of 20, and I get up there and say, you know, hey, I'm noticing this kind of behavior in our church group. And granted, it's, you know, 20 is not a very big church group. But nevertheless, you can get up there and say, I'm noticing this kind of behavior in our church. I think this is, you know, not not particularly good biblical you know, behavior. We need to address it and fix it. And it turns out 15 of the people in the church are engaged in that unbiblical behavior. You're going to get 15 people who are like, this is a bad idea. <laughs> we shouldn't do it. Um, and five other people who are kind of like, well, okay, this could be a good idea. And it turns out it's actually a very a proper and important thing to do. Right. So, um, it's, uh, it can, it can ultimately, depending on the context of the population and the context of the experience, uh, I'm just saying, I'm, I'm saying in general, what you're saying is true, but there are, there can be significant exceptions to that. And depending upon the context, those can actually be very, very common, right? So like if you've got, and, and, and I'm, I'm putting this in the context of, of a, say a senior pastor going into a church, um, because that's, that was my experience. I, I adopted a church. It was actually smaller than 20 and we grew it over, over time, um, but, uh, you know, I, I've, I've seen pastors get called into churches that were, you know, dysfunctional or had problems. And the pastors that, that succeed are the pastors who, while trying to bring everybody into the conversational loop, are, are actually kind of, in a sense, being dictatorial and pushing their ideas through. The idea, though, is this isn't a, it's not a standard operating procedure. It's rather more a crisis management tactic that has to be done in, with a very, very, a, a definitely a, a, an awareness of a short time span and some sort of checks and balances uh, in, in the process of doing it. Anyway, does that make sense? I just wanted to kind of push back a little bit on the, the 0% idea. Sure. And I mean, I mean, in general, it just takes all a lot of awareness by everyone, right? Because in the example you brought up where 15 of the 20 are benefited by a current way of doing things, you can argue that them disagreeing is not very useful information to <laughs> true, true. Wh whether the idea is actually a good one or a bad one, right? Um, but then, as you said, like in a crisis management scenario, there might be more of a either justification or need for that dictatorial type of decision-making, but with checks and balances and a knowledge of a you know short truncated time span, but there again is just a ton of difficulty because you could have someone who claims that it is that we are in a crisis state to enable themselves to get something pushed through right like that's a very, oh absolutely that's a oh, very yeah. classic yeah. way of getting your way is claiming that um everything is terrible right. um and we have to make this decision within the next eight seconds 
or everything is done. Right. Emergency management powers. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's like you need in, in large enough organizations, you need the ability to say we're in an, we're in a legitimate emergency and we need one person to have emergency powers to make it happen. But we really need a way of reversing that at some point, right? Like we, you really need a, a way of saying, okay, you need you can't have those powers forever you have to give them up and if you won't give them up there is a mechanism for forcing you to give them up you know that kind of stuff and of course i mean there's all kinds of examples in in the modern day where we have both succeeded and failed at doing that but um to pick something from history i'm i'm reminded of the roman republic right the idea of saying there were times uh in the in the republic where they were facing uh, facing a, 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 a an emergency and it was a crisis and so they're like okay we are going to give unchecked dictatorial power to one person go fix the crisis but we're going to you know th- there is a mechanism for revoking that um, after the crisis is over. Right. And that's really the, the, the key bit is, is being aware of the fact that yes, we need to extend power, but we also need a way of, of checking it. And of course I've shifted from the perspective of, you know, the chief executive to more of the board, or if you prefer, you know, the Senate of, of Rome, you know, of, of saying, well, how do we get the, the proconsul to actually give up their power or something like that at a particular time? And when is the right time to do that? You know, kind of stuff. I think it's also incumbent upon the, the, the proconsul to say, yeah, I need to let go of this. Like Cicero is a great example of this, of saying like, okay, I have succeeded in what I was chartered to do. I now need to give up my emergency powers. It is the right thing to do. And I'm going to do that. Um, rather than saying, uh, no, actually I can hang on to this and achieve even more power. And I can justify that by saying, look at all the good that I can do if I'm able to maintain these, you know, special powers, you know, kind of stuff. And where do you draw that line? It's not a, it's not an easy question. Right. Which, um, which is why it's so important to have a really strong, um, strong and balanced way that leadership is set up. Right. Because if there is some sort of a board or a larger group that is able to grant someone dictatorial power that can be taken away, um, then you can kind of get the best of both worlds in a lot of cases. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, the the other thing, it's it's critically important and and oftentimes is the biggest failing in all of this humans not being aware that they're human in the sense of what is the human tendency? The human tendency is to acquire power. And when you have the power, keep it and extend it. Right. Um, And the other thing about humans is that if we're not facing a moment of decision on something that is difficult and controversial, we will, we will, we love kicking the can down the road. We love, you know, delaying the decision. So if there is a, say a church board, um, who grants their pastor, uh, unchecked dictatorial powers, because there's a particular emergency that needs to be resolved. Right. Uh, and they say, okay, great. We're granting you these powers, go fix the emergency. Uh, the problem then is like, okay, but there isn't an end date to that. And then the board is, um, uh, the board is basically like in a position of saying like, okay, well now we have to decide to take that back um, from you. Right. So, so I think I'm dancing around the topic here, but essentially I think it's important whenever 
emergency powers are granted is to have a sunset clause in in all of those powers. Um, this is why we have you know terms of election, right? We don't we don't elect somebody to a role forever until that person resigns or until they're booted out of office by some sort of recall vote, right? Rather, we say like, okay, you're elected for one year, three years, four years, eight years, whatever the terms happen to be. Hopefully it's not eight, um, but you're elected for a particular term. And then when your term is up, you have to get reelected, right? There's, there's some sort of sunset clause. And I wish we would have that on, on a lot more, you know? So like if, um, if a leader is granted uh, exceptional emergency powers, that there is an automatic three-month sunset clause. Uh, and of course, you know, the board of directors can, can extend and say, okay, we're at the end of the three months, the crisis is not over, extend the emergency powers, right? And that can ultimately devolve into a rubber stamp, but at least there is a stamp, right? There's at least a, some kind of possible check against the, 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 the power that's been centralized. Right. Um, and so like, you know, in, in terms of a church organization, you grant, you know, the executive certain special powers, but then you got to say, okay, but we're granting these for one month, three months, six months, a year, whatever it happens to be. And it, by having that sunset, it forces the board to come back again and say, okay, are we still in crisis or not? Yes or no. And if yes, go ahead and extend, you know, <laughs> but if no, then it's probably good to go back to the way things were or establish a new order. Right. So do we have any specific exhortation here? Right. Because we're definitely not saying like, Hey, bad leaders be less bad. Right. <laughs> like, uh, I mean, is there something that if you are part of an organization or a quizzing organization that you should like be aware of, like, should you be, always evaluating what sort of checks and balances exist in your leadership or what sort of um, influence you have over decision-making or the future of a church program, a district, a denomination, uh, you know, what, what have you? Yeah, this is, it depends on the size, right? And the scope. I would say there's two things in leadership of, of various different levels. So like I've been, you know, I've been a CEO, I've been a, uh, on various different boards, chairman of a board. I've been, um, you know, senior pastor, obviously I'm currently the, the, the coordinator, district coordinator for quizzing, I, all the way down to, you know, coach and a participant in, in, you know, uh, congregational member of churches and so forth. Right. So every organization is different. And to the degree of the size and scope of those organizations, you're going to have different realities that, that come into play. But in general, I, I see sort of two areas that a leader can focus on or, or, and focus isn't the right word, be aware of, be self-aware, be aware of. So number one is solicit actively ensuring there's a mechanism by which opinions of others are solicited and truly incorporated. And that there is some sort of organizational structure that like limits your unchecked power. Uh, to some degree, right? Um, and of course, when you're talking about smaller organizations, that becomes less and less efficient to do that and less and less 
good ultimately to do that, right? So if you're talking about an organization of a, you know, a coach of a team of, of you know, eight quizzers or something like that, uh, you know, maybe you have an assistant coach, but ultimately the head coach still kind of makes all the decisions and that's okay. But be aware that that's the case as a head coach and be aware that you need to involve your assistant coach as much as possible and ask their opinion and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and just be aware that, that, okay, yeah, I am the one, you know, dictator who's making decisions. Um, but there's, there's efficiency reasons for that or, or something like that, right? That's, that's sort of number one. Uh, and if, and if in, as the organization becomes larger and, uh, and as an organization is larger, it needs to have more checks and balances and structurally defining those things. So I'm a big fan of bylaws, right? So if the organization is large enough to justify having a bylaw, uh, a set of bylaws, then that's a good thing. It protects uh, that that the structure around which it keeps you know leaders from kind of going off the rails. So that's that's the one thing, right? And as a leader, you can become, you can force yourself to become at least marginally self-aware uh, about that sort of situation in whatever context you're dealing with. The second thing. And I think it, this one's much more objective and much easier and almost entirely up to the leader to do is identify who's going to be your replacement, right? Find somebody to mentor, to disciple, to become the next you, right? And, and this is easy because you can go to, and I don't, I don't mean the process is easy. I'm, I mean, identifying whether you're doing it or not is easy because you can just simply ask yourself who is that person right or who is the who is the group of possibilities right maybe it's more than just one person maybe it's well i i've got these three or four people and i'm not really sure who's going to take over after me but it's probably one of those three or four people and i'm working with all three or four to try to train them up and and equip them and prepare them and all that kind of stuff whatever it happens to be right um it can be in, in along any of that spectra, right? But the idea of saying, like, if I ask you the question of who are you mentoring uh, to eventually be the next you, the you 2.0, if you can't give me at least a name, then it's a sign that maybe you're you're not doing what you should, right? And this is a this is something that works at every level, right? So as a, you know, senior pastor of a church, if you can I mean, granted, if your church is, you know, 20 people, maybe there's not somebody within that 20 people who feels called to be a pastor in the future. But if you're in a church of say, I don't know, 50, uh, I'm trying to think of the smallest size of church, maybe even 30. Uh, but definitely by the time you get to 50, uh, if there's not somebody in that group of 50 people that you've identified as like that person might be a, a you know a pastor at some point i need to mentor them train them equip them work with them uh i i think you're 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 failing as a as a pastor to uh fulfill your call to discipleship um discipleship of others and similarly like you know in in say a quizzing organization if you're a coach uh who who's your assistant coach? Are they ready to take over for you if you get sick or if for whatever reason you have to depart the program quickly? Uh, what's going to happen at your local church if you have to step away, you know, in an emergency capacity for whatever reason? Like, let's say something happens in life and you're like, I have to immediately give up quizzing for a year and a half to two years because of something that's happening. Um, 
and you want the program to succeed and thrive, well, you you set the conditions for that success now, not at the point when you have to immediately exit, right? Um, and for me, that's a this is a this is a hard thing to do. It's a lot harder than you know part one, but part two is objectively easier to spot if it's happening or not. Yeah, I think I agree with all that. I think my exhortations are for participants and organizations to just um, continually ask yourself, you know, what what level of participation do you have, and does everyone around you have? And like in the 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 future, the course of the organization, the decisions that are made, and do you want that to be different? Yeah. Well, any other thoughts on this before we close up? Not really. No. Well, uh, let's see. In a couple weeks, less than two weeks, uh, we're going to have another quiz meet. So our quiz meet coming up is district meet number two, I think, if I'm doing my math correctly. And it's going to be on January 8th and 9th, uh, Saturday and Sunday. It'll be at ABC. It will be intense. So uh, dress warmly, uh, dress very, very warmly, because uh, I suspect it's going to be cold. Maybe not as cold as my office, but uh, still pretty cold. So dress warmly, uh, prepare. Uh, we've got a little less than two weeks before that happens. Um, and with all that said, want to remind everybody that if you disagree with anything that we have said on this or any particular podcast, we'd like to hear from you. Please email us at iq at cbqz.org. Uh, we would very much like to hear disagreeing opinions. You can follow us on Twitter. Our account is uh, at Inside Quizzing on Twitter. And if you are on Slack, the Bible Quizzing Slack, which of course you should be because really cool things happen there, uh, you can chat with us in kind of almost near real time on the Inside Quizzing channel. And with that, I will say thank you all for listening and thank you, Scott. We often ask for anyone who thinks different or differently or has an opposing viewpoint, you mainly because it's very entertaining. But I think with our subject matter from this episode, it would be a lot more than just entertaining. It could act, it, it would actually be very useful to have that sort of discourse when people have um, opposing viewpoints or slightly alternative viewpoints. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks, Griffin. Thanks.